Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how are we doing today? Doing great. Uh, glad to be here doing this with you again, Steve. Yeah, it is. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we're coming up on a year. I'll be our next uh, episode, so looking forward to it. Pushing out the grays. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Well, this episode, though, before we jump to... Uh, Jump ahead, we have a great guest with us today um, who is going to talk about the importance of balancing engine components. So can't wait to have our guest on, uh, Mr. Randy Neal. It'll be a lot of fun uh, to have him on and do a little explaining of engine balancing uh, and the importance of balancing those components. Right, how they can help you with uh, performance and durability. Looking forward to it. But before we get to that, it is the month of August, and we got some history in the automotive industry to share with our listeners. So this happened in August of 1966. And it begins when uh, Chevrolet General Manager Pete Estes held a live press conference at Detroit's Statler Hilton Hotel in June of 1966. He opened by informing everyone in attendance that they were charter members of the Society for the Elimination of Panthers from the Automotive World. That's a pretty long society name there, Chuck. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I think that would bore people before they got started. <laughs> Once he made that announcement, he promptly assured them that this was the first and last meeting of SEPAW. Speculation that Chevrolet's new pony car would be named Panther, was immediately quelled. Estes went into some basic info on a new car from Chevy that would compete with the Ford Mustang, internally designated XP836. Chevrolet had chosen the name he was about to reveal to keep with the letter C theme of their other vehicles, such as Corvair, Chevelle, Chevy 2, and Corvette. Then he echoed the new car's name, Camaro. Asked what it meant, Estes replied, it is a small, vicious animal that eats Mustangs. <laughs> so further on, uh, the first non-pilot production Chevrolet Camaro was completed on August 11th, 1966 at Chevrolet's Norwood, Ohio assembly plant. When the car officially went on sale September 29th as a 1967 model, it was immediately successful. Buyers could upgrade from the base 230 cubic inch inline six cylinder that made a massive 140 horsepower with nearly any engine in Chevy's lineup, all the way up to the 396 cubic inch V8 that pumped out 375 horsepower if they opted for the SS package. There were more than 80 factory options available on coupes and convertibles, and an additional 40 directly through dealerships. Coming in at $2,446 for the 1967 base model, the car sold 
very well with 220,906 of them unleashed in the first model year. From the first production Chevrolet Camaro in 67 until being cut in 2002, the pony car lived through four distinct generations. Fortunately for lovers of things both new and old, the Camaro was reborn in 2009. Now in its sixth generation, the Camaro continues to compete against the Ford Mustang. Chuck, it was kind of neat going back, like, only $2,446 to buy that baby. No doubt. I've seen people spend that much on food and wine at parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't say they're not having fun if they do that, you know, <laughs> but we would have a lot more fun in a Camaro. Oh, no Only doubt. with the 396, though. Not that right, little. Right, right. 230 <laughs> cubic inch, inline six. That's a little small for that car, in my opinion, but hey, what do I know? Yeah, it doesn't scream hot rod, does it? <laughs> or muscle car. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of a, a big inch motor, uh, AERA and the EREF, which is our Engine Rebuilders Educational Foundation, is actually giving, way, giving away a big block Chevrolet engine. For this project this year, we decided to go, as we call it, old school, and build one of the performance market's all-time favorites, the big block Chevy. This will be a 540 cubic inch big block Chevy, four and a half inch bore, four and a quarter stroke. And then we will be giving that away at the PRI show in Indianapolis on Saturday, December 11th, 2021 at 1 p.m. So if they wanted to get uh, in this little uh, giveaway, Chuck, how would they do that? All right. So tickets, uh, 10 for $20. That's the minimum purchase. Includes free shipping within the continental U.S. to transport the engine from the Indianapolis Convention Center. The winning ticket will be drawn on the final day of the PRI show, as Steve said earlier. That is Saturday, December 11, 2021. No need to be present to win. Free shipping is included within the continental United States, again, to transport the engine. Yep, and you can get those tickets online at our website at AERA.org. Or you can give uh, Karen a call here at our headquarters. She'll be happy to take your order over the phone, and you can call her at 888-324-2372. I'm sorry. Again, that's 888-324-2372. Well, Chuck, we might as well jump into it. Uh, we have our guest Randy Neal on, so let's, uh, let's talk some balancing with Randy. Well, Chuck, our guest is here, so let's ready to uh, get ready to talk about balancing today. We have with us Mr. Randy Neal from CWT Industries. How you doing today, Randy? Doing great, guys, and thank you for the opportunity, Chuck. I realize it's a little early on your part of the world, but you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, so it looks like we're ready to go. <laughs> Already. <laughs> well, thanks for being on, Randy, and we'll just jump right into it here. Um, you started out, how did you really get started in the engine balancing industry, I guess? 
Well, let me start by saying my background, uh, my education actually is in computer science, and I can't think of too much that disassociated with the engine group as, as computer science and engines. But uh, at my young age, and the draft was coming into play, and my number on that lottery was number three, so I joined the service. So I, I left school, joined the service, and continued my education there in the computer science. In fact, my MOS was actually systems analyst. Now, coming out of the service, uh, one of the things that sort of happened when I got out of service is I was going to go back to school and keep playing some more. But I got this, this disease that was called racing. <laughs> and it got inside of me, and I, I just couldn't shake it. And so I started playing around. I worked for a company called JNS Automotive and started, of all things, where I think all shop guys started as a cleanup guy. And, uh, you know, after coming home at the end of the day and just covered for soot and dirt from head to toe, I said, well, I got to move this up a little bit. And so I uh, started learning more and, and again, stuck with the bug of, of racing. Uh, I just wanted to learn, and the computer science side of it uh, was, was certainly there, always there, but like I say, once you have this social disease called racing, you just can't get it out of your system. So from there, uh, I'll move forward quite a bit, and I ultimately ended up starting a machine shop, and we covered everything from uh, light automotive to heavy-duty diesel, but once again, I got involved with racing. I used to do some offshore uh, boat engines. And that was sort of an interesting trade because down in Florida, that is known as the pharmaceutical trade of the world. And these engines, we would build these, <laughs> these big block Chevys. And, uh, you know, it, the nice thing about that client at the time was that I never had a comeback. And I was really always amazed with that because I said, man, I'm really a good engine builder. Well, in <laughs> fact, I found the real story was these guys who were out on the boats, obviously picking up their supplies were full throttle wave hoppers, had no idea about anything, and they would get out of the water and free prop the engine, so to speak, and it would bite into the water and send a, a torsional twist right through the motor, and it would knock the harmonic bouncer right off the front of the engine. That in turn would set, and again, this is all high RPM, which in turn would reciprocate by knocking the number five main off, which ultimately would go through the hull and sink the boat, thereby no comebacks. No, <laughs> never heard. Never heard from them, right? <laughs> Now, the fact of the matter is it, it always steered me towards the performance side. And the thing that I started to focusing on was that we were in that era of, uh, if you remember back in those days, California used to have a saying, uh, balance and blueprint. Uh, also, if it don't go, chrome it. That was another one I, I didn't pay too much attention to. But the balance part of it, I started studying right away. And I realized that that was, at the time, we thought almost a mystique. And it was something that people uh, really didn't understand, but it's always been simple math. And so basically just using normal common sense, I started studying the process. Now, we were doing regular jobs and, and we found immediate uh, benefit to balancing, not just on the uh, racing, though. You got to understand everything I was doing uh, over the road truck engines. And we we're finding that in those cases, those engines were lasting longer. So. Uh, as we move forward, uh, you know, go forward a couple more decades, I got involved. And I had the opportunity of working for different manufacturers, going around the country, meeting some of the high-end shops. And I started noticing a common thread where there was a naivety about balancing. And as I started to get involved with some of the teams, everything from Formula One all the way to where guys race lawnmowers, there was this common thread all the way through. And I'm going to call it naivety. Uh, so I, I basically decided, look, this is an education deal. 
And as I started to explain to people the uh, dynamics involved and the immediate benefit, well, uh, next thing I know, I'm out selling uh, balancing machines for, uh, I started with Stuart Warner, I ended up with Heinz after that, and then I uh, left Heinz and started CWT. So I, I think I'm, I brought you right to the future, and I hope that sort of answered that question for you. Absolutely. Um, it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting to hear the background about how people got in our industry and and that type of thing, because everybody gets in it in a different way. And, and you know, you got in by the, the racing bug per se, which is like you say, once you have it, it's hard to get rid of. No, impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice try though. Yeah. yeah, I've watched everybody walk away from it, and then next thing I know, I see them at the racetrack, sort of in the stands with their hat, you know, covered over. They're not seeing. Yeah. You know, I'm not here. And I, you, you can't get rid of it. Sorry. No, Absolutely. You, you know, yeah, I, I always tell people as soon as I get a whiff of nitro, it's just almost like a, a cocaine addict. You know, I'm I'm all in. Uh, but, you know, also, I just wanted to follow up on that. The thing that it's really key through this this uh, cycle of life I've gone through and is that the key here is education. I just got to tell you, uh, balancing is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood applications out there. I have been blown away with people that I found to be really smart guys uh, doing some quality work. And then when I do a deep dive into their knowledge, you realize there's some voids. And through conversation, he started saying, well, you know, you got to understand how this really does work. And then when I benefited by the fact that the guy will listen, all of a sudden he comes back with this aha moment. And he, it's, it's really a fun trade for me. It's, uh, and, and like I said, I deal with so many people at so many different levels. Uh, and I learn from them, by the way. Let's, let's be clear on that. Uh, one thing that we do here is... I'll have people come at me with a whole host of different uh, applications, and then they come in with their what they consider procedural issues, and then I say, well, how'd you get there? And then that's when it starts getting sort of interesting, because sometimes it's as simple as, well, it works because I win races, and I simply say, that that's not the benchmark for me. I need to have a little bit more simple math, and let's start talking about the dynamics, the harmonic relationship, and so forth. But... I'll get into that a little bit more as we go into the conversation, but uh, I just wanted to follow up and say, look, let's be very, very clear here. This is a moving event of education. And as we do this, I got to tell you, I don't care if you're a one-man shop or you're a high-end, high-production shop. If you're not balancing, you're missing an opportunity for longevity, stability, and more importantly, profit. That that's at the end of the day, the reason that all of us are in business is for profit. Good deal. Well, that brings us to one of our questions here. And and our listeners are from novices to experts, um, kind of run the gamut there, but kind of explain what imbalance is, Randy. Well, by definition, you know, if you want to look it up in a dictionary, what is about, it means the, it means a disturbed balance of equilibrium. Now, okay, what the hell does that mean? It's just as simple. If an object is rotating and it's not spinning on a principal center line of axis, in other words, true center, and that it has equal mass proportional to that surface. In other words, let's call it uh, a round disc. And if it is perfect in, in shape, let's call it to the millionth of an inch, and the density equation is uniform and it's spinning on center, it's not going to have vibration. 
Now, if we had a, let's just go to an extreme and say that the material itself has disparate uh, density. Now, you can't see that. So even though it's been machined to the millionth of an inch, that density plays a proportional offset. So what happens in the rotation is it actually takes the energy and puts it into orbit. So if I was to summarize what balancing really is, is that there's no cancellation. Uh, and in doing so, that means there's a mass in one vector. Now, when I say one vector, I mean one degree that is not being counteracted in 180 degrees of that. So depending upon, and we talk about mass density, you say, wow, that's really pretty fine. And the answer is yes, but let's go ahead and take one of these disks and put a bolt on one side and not on the other side, and you're gonna see a radical imbalance. And as you increase the RPM, and this is another part of the balance thing, is that people simply don't understand that if I put one gram of off-centered weight and I spin it around at a fixed RPM, it'll generate force. Now, the new balancing technology is very simple. The electronics do all the work for you. The software does all the mental gymnastics, and it will locate it, but it will also give you a scalable reference. In other words, it should identify that one gram. But when you put that application into reality, you're not going to spin it at the surface speed on the measurement machine. You're going to go from anywhere from, let's say, 1 RPM to 10,000 RPM. Well, this is the part that people simply don't get, and that is that one gram, if you double the RPM, it increases with the square of RPM. So that one gram can generate a phenomenal amount of force at 10,000. Now, you say, oh, well, big deal, one gram. Let me tell you something. Most of the, and I'll use crank assemblies, and I'm not trying to belittle any of the crank suppliers because they're doing a good job. They basically balance these cranks to target bob weights. But the application or the end user his bob weight is typically different. And in doing so, that one gram may turn into 300 grams. And I've had kits come in through suppliers that have a piston supplier A, ring supplier B, and so forth and so forth. And their measurement weights are totally alien to what the crank manufacturer generated. So when I say 300 grams is possible, man, I've seen worse than that. I've also seen them come in uh, 20, 30 grams. Well, guess what? None of those are acceptable to any of the engines, not just high performance, but I'm talking about grandma's car. So you got to understand things have changed radically. What we used to do 10 years, 20 years ago, and for that matter, five years ago, the tolerances have changed. Now, again, let's understand what that unbalanced force is doing. It's always in a single vector. And what I mean by that, it doesn't float around. It's always in the same degree of offense. What I mean by that, let's say that we had 20 degree off in one direction. It's not going to change. It's still 20 degrees. Now, the force changes with the RPM. So in doing so, once you have unbalance in the engine, it will not be correctable unless you disassemble the engine and rebalance it and correct it. Now, unlike an engine that's running, let's say that it's, it's a fuel-injected unit, and it's been balanced perfect, but it has flutter, all right? And the guy says, well, the engine's out of balance. Now, nah, it could be as simple as an injector misbehaving. In other words, what happens there is the cylinder pressures are deviant. In other words, I used to do an old deal where I taught a class at a vocational school, and I showed people the difference between what's called first-order and second-order balance. 
when we bounce on the crank machine, that's first order. I'll come back to that in a minute. But when we get into a running engine, we have multiple orders. And the first one under attack is second order. So what I used to do, and this was before HEI ignition. Now, I'm talking about the old days when you could go up and grab a spark plug and pull it off and the engine would start shaking. That's because the cylinder balance pressure of that particular cylinder, you pulled the plug wire off, well, it's dead. And so the engine would just uh, become disrupted and you could feel it. Well, that's a, a pretty radical change, but let's say your injectors are all running in theory 100% and they're doing their job. By the way, there is no 100%, but let's just <laughs> simply say for the purpose of illustration, 100%. And I got an injector that's performing at 80. Well, that in itself will indicate a vibration. That's because the unbalance of cylinder pressure. And sometimes you'll find people will actually get involved with this and they'll blame the balance when in fact they had an ignition or a fuel problem. And so the, the, this is that part where diagnostic equipment will help, but it's also common sense. So, and going back to the spark plug deal, if anybody wants to try that under today's type system, I don't recommend it. Uh, you know, you grab that, that spark plug wire on one of those things, right? It'll weld part of your anatomy together. So <laughs> don't, don't go down that path. So you got to appreciate that balance is one of those things that's dynamic and you got to appreciate a lot of people misinterpret on balance by other related events. In other words, I've had customers balance engines, be right in tolerance, build the engine, put it in the vehicle and say, hey, this thing's vibrating. And I always ask a simple question, by the way. I say, when does it vibrate? And they say, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, is it at a thousand RPMs vibrating? No, it's pretty good there. Well, what about 2,000? Oh, that's pretty good. Well, 3,000, 4,000. And the guy says, you know, it's right about 5,200 RPM. And I say, it ain't unbalanced. You know, you've got something related that is triggering that. If unbalanced, if at 1,000 RPM of unbalanced, it's going to go to 2,000. It's going to be four times the force. So in order to have unbalanced, it will continually climb and climb and climb and climb. It doesn't have a sweet spot. Now, there is a relationship, and if guys, really smart guys out there that have an understanding of frequencies, there are critical frequencies. But as an example of this discussion, you got to understand if the unbalance is there at 1,000 RPM, it will only get worse as you increase the RPM. It won't stay smooth and then hit a critical frequency and go berserk. That's probably something related to a fuel ignition situation, not a mechanical uh, situation. So, Randy... Okay? You go down that path, and that's actually one of the questions uh, that I had in mind was how often is a tune runnability issue uh, considered or factored as balance? And it sounds like that's a pretty common thing to discuss. <clears throat> it is. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go and finish your question. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, was I was just – no. But, no, your topic, I mean, just discussing that, uh, you know – it just proves that that happens and happens often. Well, it's very common because number one thing that, and again, this is just going outside the discussion of immediate balance, but you got to understand a guy brings a vehicle in and the engine needs service, right? For whatever reason, uh, or he's, he's upscaling it, making a you know, higher compression or whatever the case is. Now, then he puts it back in the vehicle with the same plug wires, the same ignition system, the same fuel system, Everything, and by the way, it sat six months before he brought it in. The fuel is, is just junk. You know, fuel doesn't have life cycles, by the way. 
there's a very limited amount of, of uh, life cycle to active fuels. And so anyhow, he, he does all this thing, the machine shop, let's, let's give this a high five to that guy. He said, he did a perfect job. But guess what? They put it back in this environment and it's saying the engine's misbehaving like crazy. And it shakes and it shudders and it spits and farts. It does all this other stuff. And he calls up the shop and says, yeah, you screwed me up. And the, the guy at the machine shop sitting there going, well, don't think so. But, you know, I'm going to listen. Now, this is a rabbit hole discussion. Because instead of the guy going back and saying, look, the engine rebuild was one factor. And then all of these other things I entered is 10 other factors. Which one does the end user look at? Machine shop. Now, that's not 100% true, but I got to tell you, more true than not. And so uh, the analysis or the, uh, well, let's just say the, the end user, let's be fair with this also. Machine shop knowledge and installer knowledge are somewhat paralleled, but boy, there are definite differences in technical knowledge. And the guy on the other end, on the, the assembly side, who's really a great technician, has done his homework, gone ahead and bonafide all the other stuff. Okay, that guy I can have a discussion with. The guy that just says, hey, I can turn a 916 wrench and I know how to turn, you know, torque into this. Hey, his skill set's on the bottom side of my conversation. So, but you, you want to learn. You want to listen. And uh, so to answer your question, how often? can't put an exact number on it, but I can tell you it's very common. But for the reason I just specified, the engine got fixed and everything else was the same. You know, and so the immediate phone call is go talk to the last guy that touched it. <laughs> right. So, so it, true. It, so true. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but that's a part of our job, though. See, now our job is to come back and say, OK, look, I understand you got a situation. But let's let's peel the onion back a little bit and let's talk about how I, I'm sure the engine or the vehicle didn't come in running like a Swiss watch. It came in screwed up. You analyze one part of it or more importantly, you just decided that you wanted more power. You know, and, and so these, these are alien discussions, actually, but uh, sometimes common sense is left at the door and uh, a good machine shop who is a. I don't want to call him a victim of the discussion, but let's just say he's associated. His first thing he should do is calm everybody down and talk about previous activity to the build. And I think that steers the conversation uh, to a, a viable remedy. Yeah, that that's help? probably that's probably one of the first questions we ask anytime we get a, a tech call is, well, why why is the engine down or why 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 do you have it? And those guys, they need to know that. <laughs> yeah. So let, let me pull this back a little bit more, though. When we talk about unbalanced situations, what people totally misunderstand is that I, I alluded to the conversation earlier that there could be other influences. In other words, multiple order vibration problems. And by the way, that can be related to a host of other things. I mean, there, there's multiple levels, but I just handed on first uh, order and second order. But your fourth order would be another one that's pretty common. But here's where I'm going with this. When we talk about balance, once you balance in the machine and you have achieved the tolerance, and I'm going to come back to tolerance in a minute. Once you achieve tolerance, that thing is golden. In other words, it's not going to misbehave because of the mechanical environment. 
it will be consistent because of the law of physics. Now, if the engine is misbehaving, there's a other influence. Now, here's what's good and bad about this. If I know that the balance is consistently getting worse with RPM, it's identifiable right away. So I realize that the machine shop or the balance shop, whoever you want to call, has made an error. All right, there it is. We can fix that. If it does not have that consistent increase and it's erratic to some other thing, in, in some situations, I can go back and challenge certain things. For instance, I can challenge the harmonic balancer, balancer itself. In other words, there's a lot of balancers that are coming from overseas that I'll just put it where it is. It's, they're junk. All right. Torsional applications. In other words, I talked about pulling a spark plug wire off and watching the engine gyrate back and forth. The first attack on that is the harmonic balancer. Its mission statement is to take care of that torsional event. Well, I got to tell you, pulling the spark plug wire off, it can't control that. It can dampen, which is its mission statement. It can minimize, which is its mission statement. But it cannot absorb that. Not a chance in the world. By the same token, let me just simply say that if it was an injector or a spark plug wire or something in, in that category, that's replaceable. The problem disappears. You know, it, it, the technician, in other words, I'm talking about the guy who's putting the thing into service, that's on him. And if he can make things go away and come by changing components external, number one, it's the cheapest path. But number two, obviously, he was blaming the wrong guy in the beginning. Now, I'm not, it's not a blame game. I'm trying to get knowledge here and understand that unbalance cannot get better with speed. As you change that surface speed, RPM, off it goes. Now, let me dive in a little bit more, though, and I want to throw one more uh, sort of a, a neat situation. We're seeing a lot of guys that do these mountain motors. And uh, I'm talking big cubic inch, big horsepower. Some of it normally aspirated. Most of it is boosted power. But they are making so much power that it's exceeding the structural integrity of the components. Now, what's that simply mean? That means that I put so much load onto that crankshaft and on that crank pin, it's, if it could talk, it would, it would be biblical. It would, it would just be crazy. And so they, they call me up periodically and say, well, I'm getting wiping on the outside of the bearing edges. And I'm saying, okay, that's pretty obvious. You've exceeded the ability of the crankshaft to handle the load. And they said, well, how do I fix that? Well, okay, take away the power. That's not why he's here. He wants to make power. <laughs> Right. So the answer was obvious, but he didn't want to hear it. And or you make the structure stronger. Now, you can do that in a host of ways. In other words, taking a cast crank and putting it in a 2000 horsepower application. It's fun to watch because they blow up really cool. I mean, they just the grenade <laughs> right away. But when you're talking about taking a uh, just say a inexpensive crank, let's go ahead and say it's a supposedly a billet. And but it hasn't it isn't the right alloy or it's not the right bearing width. It's not the the uh, dispersed load capability of a high end crankshaft. Don't expect it to be. Now, again, back to the mountain motor guys, they call me up and say, well, I want to get this where I'm not wiping the edge of the bearing. And I said, well, I already gave you an answer. You didn't like that one. So what do you want to do? He said, well, I found I talked to a guy and I saw it on the Internet because one of these these. These uh, conversations are out there. And the guy says, open the clearance. Well, 
what do you mean, open and clearance? It says, well, you know, they want to go up for four, five, six, seven thousands of bearing clearance. And I just come back to real simple. I was like, you're nuts. You're just incredibly nuts. I said, that bearing, first thing is there's a simple rule that, and this is generic, there's a thousandth of clearance per di inch of diameter. Now, that's a fairly safe place to be. But if you go ahead and you double that clearance or anything over what I'm, I'm suggesting here, there's an old saying Abe Lincoln said, all rivers and most men seek the avenue of least resistance. Well, let me tell you, oil knows that same rule. In other words, you give it an escape route and it will not go to the load area. It will run away from the load area. Now, the guy says, yeah, but I'm not getting bearing swipe, but I do have a funny bearing read. And I said, well, there, you finally got to it. Because you got to understand, one of the things that balancing has, there's a, you know, they always say you want to go to the scene of the crime. Let me tell you where the scene of the crime and unbalance is, the bearing. That bearing, when it is unhappy, it tells you all sorts of things. Now, obviously, if it's lack of oil, no brainer. If it's a situation where you're seeing chatter or you're seeing deformation, uh, it could be a combination of detonation. It could be a combination of unbalance. It could be a, a combination of alignment. There's a whole bunch of things. But when we go back and we see excessive load, which means excessive distortion of the, in this case, crank slash rod, it's an argument. And the bearing's just sitting there testifying. It's yelling, hey, hey, I got a problem here. So what's the guy do? Ah, hell, we'll give it more clearance. It, you know, this is going down the wrong path. So the mission statement I'm trying to get to here is, as we start studying unbalance, you got to understand the scene of the crime is the bearing. And when you have unbalance, that's where things are going to testify. It's going to be clear as it can possibly uh, make it. And then you'll start backing up and getting away. If your crank is flexing, <laughs> don't open the clearance. Now, where am I going with this? You got to understand if that crank is rotating, and let's just say for the sake of argument, I'm going to use two thousands of clearance on a, on a bearing. I'm just going to use it as a quick number. We know for a fact, especially with the, the light viscosity oils, and they're running up at the 200 degree range, the actual bearing, what we consider the cushion between the journal and the bearing, is a couple, two to four tenths of a thousandth of an inch. Okay, so let's use four tenths. Well, if I've got bearing clearance of two thousandths. That means that I have the ability to offset. In other words, because of load, we've gone from rotation to orbit. Now, keep in mind, when we first balance it in a machine, all the units are set up either on rollers or V-blocks, and they're running on center line. When you put it in an engine, and that, by the way, this is why it's called revolutions per minute. It's revolving inside of the housing bore. You open that clearance, guess what? You, you've exasperated. Not only have you created the oiling problem I talked about, but you're talking about the crank literally spinning off center, which takes the mass weight. And let's call the crank, I'll use 50 pounds. And I'm moving it two, three, four thousandths of off center. Now that equates in, in real quick math to several hundred pounds of force instantly. And it's always going to be in that same vector position. So when these guys are opening up the clearances, you know, I just, I cringe when I hear those things. And I keep saying, you're just headed in the wrong direction. You know, if you actually, if you'll study the mountain motor business, guys are going to billet blocks. They're getting bigger bearing bores. They're getting, uh, they're finally, by the way, uh, going and adding structural integrity back into it. In other words, we used to run six counterweight applications. That was the key everywhere. Now everybody's understanding to run eight counterweights. 
Why? Because it adds structural integrity to the crank, and it also, you got to understand the dampener, excuse me, the counterweight has two mission statements. First one is there to correct the amount of unbalanced force, in this case, piston rod assembly mass, but it's also there to add structural integrity to the crankshaft to assist in the torsional load. And you say, well, what's this all about? Well, let's get something clear. When I'm firing under pressure on one end of the motor, I'm in overlap at the other. Just think of it, a beer can twisting back and forth. So if that shaft, and I'll use the old Model A, uh, when those shafts were out there, those things were spaghetti. And in fact, Tom Lieb out of the SCAT came back with a remedy for that by putting counterweights into that Model T and the Model A systems. And when they put it together, uh, it didn't have that same sound because the crank wasn't twisting as much. And by the way, the purists didn't like that because they want, you know, they'd put the late model crank and say, hey, it sounds like a pinno. The guy says, I don't want to sound like a pinno. You know, I need to go back. So they go back. They, they, the purists won't run that crank, even <laughs> though Tom had a great idea. Now, I've sort of digressed out. I went from a Model A, Model T to a mountain motor. Same thing is into effect here. If you exceed the amount of load, something has to surrender. Now, does it flex? Okay. Did it break? It will. That's the other thing I want to come back and talk about. And that is when we talk about this, uh, I talk about bound or unbalanced like a little baby with a little hammer left in a room unattended. I, that room will be destroyed. Well, with balance, if you don't correct it and you just let it go, it's a time bomb. We just had a deal with a customer, a well-known engine builder, who was breaking. Uh, these are actually power generators. Uh, and at the 4,000-hour mark, it was snapping the crank. And these were 454 engines, cast crank, by the way. And they called me up, and they said, what do you think is wrong? I said, well, you exceeded the ability of structural integrity. Well, what the hell does that mean? I said, just what I said. Over time, all metals fatigue. And I said, so what you've got is, he said, no, no, it's been balanced. It's, 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 that's it. And then we're not generating that much power. I said, well, you got something else. Well, here's, I'll shorten the story. What they were doing, they had an internal balance system and they put a harmonic balancer that was external. So what it did over cycle time, that torsional activity of having that unbalanced at one end only, basically fatigued the crank and it would crack right behind the number one main. Every time. At given hours. So all metals are cyclical. I mean, they have a saturation point and then they have a, a what we call a yield point and then a failure point. Well, this was caused by unbalance. Okay? And that's where the crime scene is extremely important. You know, when you had the opportunity to look where it's at, because, you know, when I was in the engine shop, one of the things I used to talk about with the guys is, it, it's tough sometimes when you get a dead body back without a crime scene. Um, and it's nice when you do have the crime scene to evaluate. Um, but yeah, that, that life cycle thing, if you could, um, while we're talking about the, the counterweights before we get too far from that, uh, one of the things in working with you in the past, we had talked about when people get carried away drilling the vertical drillings and what, you know, you basically you turn that counterweight into a rooster comb. Well, there's the opportunity for that thing to lose its structural integrity. So you spend all this time and effort to balance a crank, but you took the integrity out of it. So you still, you have that spaghetti noodle, as you mentioned. 
Well, I'll tell you what. Here, here's the deal where we're going to go old school, new school. In other words, if you went back, and, and I'm moving back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, for instance, uh, General Motors had a 396 uh, 425 horse. I mean, that thing was just the engine. I don't care who you were. In fact, everybody that bought one of those cars immediately put the 327 emblems on the side of the car so they had sleepers, right? So, and, and only the guys in the old days will understand what I just said. Because whenever you pulled up next to the guy and you're going to be at the, the, the street light ready to go, he'd look down and see what engine you had. All right. So, oh, he's a 327. Nah, I'm 396. I got your ass. And the light goes green and you're smoking. Well, here's the deal. That was 425 horse. For Christ's sake, I just bought my, my grandson a, a Mustang with a four-cylinder that makes 310 horsepower. Right? Now, think that through for a second. <laughs> now, here's the deal. You got to appreciate the fact what we did back then and what we do now is not the same. So in the old days, you weren't making the same power. Now we're making power. Now I'm back to the number one firing. Number eight is an overlap. So these crankshafts, if you go and lighten them or they're not structurally capable, you have exasperated the torsional problem. So going into your drilling situations in the old days, and I got to tell you, I had a bunch of clients out there that would turn these things into Swiss cheese. Now, what they don't <laughs> understand is, is that when the engine makes, and I'll just use simple math here, say 100 horsepower versus 300 horsepower, which of those two do you think has more torsional load? Obviously the higher one. So what we used to get away with, dumb, all right? It was dumb back then, by the way, but we could get away with it because we didn't have the expertise and the knowledge that we have today. So here's the deal. If you're taking a stock crank, and most of the cranks that you'll see are six counterweight, because and the reason they do that, by the way, the OE, not because it's right, it's because it's cheaper. Let's get that clear. The other side of it is the OEM is not trying to make race engines. They're trying to make durable engines. Uh, so when we get guys that are going in and turning these things into Swiss cheese, two things happen. Number one, the first thing is what I just said, you lose the integrity of the counterweight to be an assist to the structure of the crank. But it's worse than that because what happens is the counterweight, and again, I can't say specifically, but I've seen some stuff where people have gone so crazy, they're cutting V's out of the counterweight and they, they flutter. The crank counterweight will flutter. And when that happens, it's just, if anybody's ever gone up and rang a bell, you understand that it will resonate. So once you, the combustion cycle, all right, and let's, let's just say combustion is a hammer. Once you hit that particular application, it will respond. Well, if the counterweight, you know, it's the old story. I used to say knee bone connect to the shin bone, connect to an ankle bone. Trust me, when that crank hits uh, a load, it sends all of that resonance through the crank. The crank's mission statement is to come in and handle that load but it can also become, and this is a term we've used in many presentations, an exciter. Now, once you excite it, and again, hitting the bell is resonating, that goes all the way through that engine right up. Literally, I'm exasperating this to the point, or exaggerating, sorry, to the wing nut on the, the air cleaner. In other words, everything is linked. So when these cranks become excited, everything that's attached, including the block, and I'm going to talk about that for a second, when it, it jumps all the way through, it goes through the valve train right up to the valve tip. And for those who don't understand that, you're missing opportunity to build a better engine. Old school guy will sit there and say, ah, it doesn't matter. 
let me tell you something. Old school is old school. If you don't sign on to what's going on now, and this is the whole key of, of uh, evolution of product, is education. So you got to appreciate one of the things that the OEMs did because of the CAFE standard is they said, we got to get better gas mileage. And so they lightened the blocks. Now, when they did that, they turned them. By the way, the block was a damper. Understand, it's a structural damper. And so as you lighten it, it becomes easily excitable. If it's excited, think about everything else that's attached. Equally excited. So this is where we're finding everything has changed. If you look at the technology we're out there, whether we're talking about surface finish or cylinder bores, or we're talking about uh, cam load profiles. Uh, in fact, at old school, we used to run super high spring pressure. We now learn we don't have to do that. We can change the ramps. Everything's better. We're making more power, more stable, more durability. This is education. Same thing holds true with balancing, by the way. Because if I don't take that primary exciter, which is the unbalance of the crank, and I become cavalier about doing that, and I put this engine together, sorry, you know, you, you sat there and you put a cancer into your process. And it won't go away until you take it back apart and correct it. So it's critical. And I don't care if it's grandma's car or it's, it's uh, over-the-road truck or it's uh, earth-moving equipment. Balancing is that little baby with a little hammer that will ultimately beat the crap out of that engine. So for people to not pay attention to that, I have to question your intellect. Well, Randy, I want to use that as a segue into, um, you know, where can we balance other components of the engine? And you'd mentioned, you know, cast iron, we know it's got good damping properties. Cast iron has been gone for a long time because of weight. Now we are seeing, uh, because of the power output we're expecting of engines, and it's not just diesels, um, the use of compacted graphite. So six mm -hmm. seven Ford and the six O, I mean the six seven Ford, six seven Cummins, things that nature. Those are really common, but the two seven EcoBoost, that's mm -hmm. compacted graphite. So mm -hmm. once you lose that damping effect, as you mentioned earlier, now we have more opportunity for other things within the unit to be balanced. So can you speak to, uh, you know, things? I know that you've done some uh, info presentation on camshaft. We know that turbochargers. Uh, so could you speak to that some? All right. First things first, anything that rotates needs to be balanced. I don't care if it's a, the ceiling fan in your office. All right. If you don't believe that, go up there and hang a weight on one of those blades and turn that thing on and see how long it lasts. <laughs> now, that's just, just a quick mechanical example of how unbalanced can, you know, that it'll rip the fan right out of the ceiling. Now, and, and this is the naivety of balancing. People just don't understand. So let's, I guess about 20 years ago, I made a, a sort of a white paper on balancing camshafts. And I took so much flack over that, that they said, you know, you're crazy. You know, a camshaft at a half speed event. And I said, yep, but it's still a speed event. And then when I said, well, when you start taking that into pro ranks and you're turning the engine 10,000, that cranks enough, our cam is 5,000. Now, I've sort of come back over time and said, you know, there's a point here of validity and there's a point of entertainment. And let's do this. If we went back to a stock cam, if you remember the old days, we and still do, by the way, we have a lobe that's set up to activate a, a push uh, device for, say, the fuel pump. Or it could be any other exciter. Now, anything that's in there automatically challenges the unbalance, but it also challenges the structural ability of the cam. 
for instance, if I go back and I'll use Smartwatch every example, and they were running stock cam bearing applications, and they were sitting putting a thousand pound seat pressure on on the uh, for the valves, that cam was just pissed off. That's just all there is to it. It's got this high, and especially you see we go for whether it's flat tap it or roller, I don't care which. The line contact of that load on the cam would sit there and just is like spaghetti. I mean, you just push, and these things were going back and forth. Well, we've, we've changed that. In other words, if you were trying to really take something with a super high spring pressure against this uh, wimpy camshaft, I mean, all bets are off. In fact, I had a discussion with Chase Knight at Cam, or from Kane Cams going back and dating myself. He says, look, there is such chaos going on in there with that engine running. That cam is just going nuts. And I said, well, okay, I get it. Well, the fact of the matter is we learned that that chaos has to be uh, eliminated. And so now you're seeing cams, and in some cases, we're seeing them at 80 millimeter plus diameter. But the other thing they're doing is they're going into a much, uh, there's a couple of reasons by the 80 millimeter, by the way. And that is by increasing the base circle of the cam, there's net benefit to profiles. I get all that. But where I'm coming from is the fact that the cam is rigid enough that now, all of a sudden, you take this variable of discussion against flex out. And so what happens is if that camshaft is out of balance, and let's just be fair about it, it's creating unbalance, which is what displacement. So it's going to sit there and affect the activity of the roller following the lobe. Well, I don't care how you do this. If, if you change what the design engineer had, don't expect it to give the results that he designed. So by balancing the cam, you're taking a variable out that should not be part of the equation. And if you're missing that opportunity to do that, you just put a, uh, what I consider a cancerous philosophy into your engine profiles. So the way that we're seeing all engines change uh, is through evolution. Uh, we're becoming smarter guys. We're starting to find out that it's the parasitic loss that we're able to get net benefit from. Even though the engineers design really good stuff, and I'm good with that, and like you say, we talk about the blocks for a second, you got to understand each one of those blocks has a natural frequency also. In fact, one of the reasons that when the CAFE standards were set up and they lightened these things up, the first thing they did is all of the knock sensors were going stupid on them because it had the first order balance giving false trigger. And so what would happen is the engine was supposedly being metered through the fuel system, and as soon as it saw a false knock, it said detonation, and so what's it do? It fattens up the fuel system. So it, was, it, it cancels. So now the tolerances that we used to use in balance, for instance, two tenths ounce inch is old, old, old racing standards. In other words, that's for pro stock. Now, believe it or not, grandma's car is 0.16 ounce inches. They've had to take out every possible mechanism of unbalance so it's not giving false trigger to some of the sensors. Now, it's a case-by-case, case, and like you say, with different block alloys, aluminum being the other one, you know, got to understand the aluminum uh, application, we're actually seeing some of that change because they found out that, that it doesn't have the structural strength they ha thought it would. Uh, they also found it had a, a high resonance. So they're, they're learning, but going back to other items of balance, turbochargers, listen, this is a different game altogether. We're not spending these things at 10,000 RPM. For Christ's sake, when it's idling, the engine idling is past 10,000. So, you know, we're seeing some applications where there's three types of turbochargers on a single engine. 
And that little guy is like a French poodle running against a Great Dane. And it's, it's just going like crazy. And we have some applications where they're talking, and, and now we're looking at 300,000 RPM. Well, you got to remember that one gram I talked about in the beginning. First of all, when we balance turbos, it's generally 0.0001 gram is a, is a, um, a measurement of uh, comparison. It is totally, totally different, different animal altogether. So let me add this and put it, if we look at Formula One racing, and by the way, those engines are running pretty close to 50% efficiency. And normally aspirated motors here, even in pro stock, were probably light 30% uh, per, uh, percentage of efficiency. We've got a long way to go here in the U.S. But back on those particular engines, every single rotating device they have has a damper on it. I want you to think about that. We talk about a harmonic balancer on the inner crank as being out. Oh, okay, there it is. Think about this. Everything that rotates on those engines has a damper. And they've learned that these high-frequency issues have to be sequestered or it attacks the mechanical uh, design of the engine. There's a lot of things that we got to learn here in the U.S. And in balancing, uh, if, you, if you're not paying attention to balance, you're just leaving money on the table, so to speak. Or I, I rather prefer to look at it as your, your uh, thought process has cancer in it. You just got to take that out of the equation. <clears throat> Earlier, you were speaking about the, uh, the fuel pumps being driven by the camshaft, mm -hmm. you know, and that used to be reserved for the race world, but now nearly all of your gas direct injected engines, they have to have that fuel pump. Well, guess where they're driving that from? You can't, you know, the old supply pump in the tank is not your fuel pump. That right. gets, that's just a lift pump, like from the diesel world. So now, you know, here we are, we're driving high pressure fuel pumps from the camshaft. Yep. Uh, and then it's usually in a terrible place um, because it's outside of the engine kind of. So now that's another load that we're putting onto that camshaft in a different area that doesn't typically see the load. Uh, so again, it goes back to what we're working on today as what's running up and down the road is high performance. And, and so we should consider those factors of, Hey, well, that thing accepted that imbalance back then. Well, there's not a whole lot of room for margin. Now speaking of the crankshafts, can, can we think of any crankshaft in any modern vehicle that's made out of iron? They're all pressed radius steel um, because they're trying yeah. to take mass. They're trying to get rid right. of the mass. So right. just more reason to make the stuff right. Well, one of the things that I do find interesting is that uh, the OEMs, listen, I got to tell you, the aftermarket needs to pay a lot more attention to the OEM. A lot of those guys are way ahead of the o, uh, aftermarket techniques and it's inevitable you're going to follow them. So it's, it, seems to me that one of the processes of education is to get as close to the OE and find out what the heck he's current with, because it's inevitable it's coming your way. So let's talk about the different alloys and the, the manufacturer of the product. The only time I'm not going to give uh, the OEs a complete grade A on this thing. I'm going to give them an F in some places because it seems like the guy on the engineering team that is focused on one area forgets to talk to the other guy at the other end of the room. Absolutely. And, and then they'll see something come out of the product and they send it down the highway and then they say, oops. Well, that oops is aftermarket. That's when we see it. 
All right, the OE gets away with it and says, whoops, well, we'll change that. In fact, if you think about it, back in the old days, to get a casting change on an engine type, uh, God, it was six months or maybe even a year of lead time. Now it's, well, it's 2 o'clock Monday, let's change something. I mean, the, the ability for us to change designs instantly at the OEM level is phenomenal, which is cool. You know, I'm, I'm very impressed with all that. But the, the point I'm trying to get to here is uh, sometimes there's a disconnect in conversation at all levels. And the OE sometimes, I'll say it's a sense of humor, uh, they'll make a, a component that is almost like a tuning fork. That thing, if you look at it, it gets excited. So uh, when you look at all the peripheral support to the engine, and, you know, look, let's go all the way back to an alternator. Don't you remember? That has to be balanced. The water pump has to be balanced. Power steering pumps have to be balanced. Anything that rotates has to be balanced. So when the engine builder goes and he, he buys this, uh, well, he does a complete engine build. He does first-class work. He goes ahead and he buy, puts the other components on that he did not check. He ran because that's the way the vehicle came in. And guess what? There is another misapplication of unbalance. And all of a sudden, who gets the hit on the head? Engine builder, right? So there's a whole bunch of components that need to be addressed. And if the guy is, is really on the other end of doing proper analysis, he's going to put that up on his radar before he starts blaming the machine shop. Uh, but I, I do, you know, we want to go back just for a second on camshafts and turbochargers. I don't care if it rotates, it has to be done. If you go back to the, this deal where we're talking about late model driven components, that's what I'm saying. The engineers sometimes really sort of don't talk to each other. When you take a, an object and you put a torsional event into it and there's a counter to it and it's an argument, something's got to surrender. And so we typically find it, and that's part of what AERA does, is they start finding all of these nice technical situations, and they get a heads up to the end user. That's one of the benefits of, of AERA. But the, the combination of knowledge and exposure of that knowledge is really critical. And I know AERA has the, the ability here on, on uh, the way they're a credible training system. I know we have the only balanced curriculum uh, in the U.S. here. Uh, and we do that to, to educate, to bring people to the next level. They, in turn, need to educate their end user so they understand the net benefit. In other words, don't just charge them for something. Tell them what you're doing. And you'd be amazed how you'll build your brand as a chief or a, a, a king engine builder. But to just do something to hand them a, a price ticket, uh, that's not the way to promote your business. Tell them what you did, educate them, and you're going to find net benefit. Okay. Absolutely. You know, and I was actually sharing this with Steve uh, the last time I was up at HQ. I was listening to a book by Adam Savage, Every Tool's a Hammer. And, you know, so speaking outside of our industry, I think everybody knows Mythbusters and Adam Savage and so forth. But one of the things that he went off on a tangent, and I thought, boy, this is something to share with uh, Randy. He's saying so many of their builds failed because they didn't understand imbalance. He said, so I call balance or imbalance the vampire of power and performance because it will, it will steal, it will rob, it will destroy your projects. 
they've had many builds to fill from that. And they talked about a, a high volume pump that they had built for moving a lot of water for firefighting. <clears throat> and anyway, get your education where you can. And, you know, and, and us doing these podcasts again, they may be the novice and they may not even be in the industry, but they just like podcasts and they say, Oh, I like all things mechanical. I mean, you get that education where you can, uh, you know, I'm sure most of our dads used to tell us this. Mine did often, you know, Hey, you were blessed with two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> yeah. well, well, let me, let me pick so up on that. Here, here's the thing that you said that, that's absolutely. And, and I try to find keywords that will stimulate conversation. Now, parasitic is something that this industry is starting to study about everything that we're doing in the industry. In other words, in order to have efficiency, it's not a one side coin. Uh, yes, there's design property changes. There's alloys and things like this. But if you'll dive into, and I'm, I'm just going to go back real quick on, on simply saying that I use the word cancer because cancer gets everybody's attention. Parasitic is, is another word. But how about just stupid? Let's put that one into the conversation a minute. And if, if you're sitting there thinking that you can leave an engine unbalanced and put it in the engine and put the, the highest compression, the perfect cylinder wall finish, the best camshaft, blah, 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 blah. And you're going to fix that. I, I'll put it simple. You're nuts. You're just absolutely 100% nuts. And so I, I got to get the industry to understand that in order to build something, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're building a puzzle. You know, you got to sit there and understand where is the cancer of the system? What's the loss side of it? Take that out of the equation. Then everything else starts moving forward. In fact, philosophically, that's what the key engine builders are. They do not leave a single thing unturned. They sit there and tweak every single thing that's going on. Can it evolve? Yeah, I'll talk about surface finish right there on, on engine blocks. Look at that deal. And it is per application sometimes. So one size doesn't fit all. You got to understand that the, the, the education of industry for the professional, automatic. For the novice, curiosity. For the guy that's going to fail, he just ignores it. Just that simple. Now, I want to go back just for a second and, and say efficiency or parasitic events. Guy called me the other day and he was talking about uh, gear drive systems. Are they good for uh, the engine? Or is it better to have a, a timing belt uh, like a Jessel system or something like that? And I said, well, here's the deal. Both of them have their merits. Both of them have their disadvantages. And, you know, we spend a lot of time on spintrons studying harmonics and frequencies and, and things like this to determine cause and effect. So when I look at, for instance, the gear drives, you got to understand that something is an old, I'm, I'm not picking on Jackson, I'm just using because it it's a dated drive. The way they made gears back then, buddy, that was pretty rough. In fact, you know, you, you, they were just noisy. Noise is a uh, testification of uh, this isn't working well. A lot of times I do when I'm working in spintrons, I come in with thermal guns and I want to see how the mechanisms are generating heat. Heat is not a good thing. All right. So it's very easy for us to study this and say, wait a minute, what, I see it. Now what's cause and effect? And you look at gear mesh and right there, I got to tell you, the, the next evolution of gear drives, I think it's going to come back, is that once they get the gear mesh down, 
we have a whole bunch of neat things that are happening there. Now, going back to the Jessel system, it, when they first came out, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I like them. I still like them. But when I put them up on the Spintron, and unless I'm putting support to the belt itself, these things go into hysteria. They are just fluttering like crazy. And so when I see that, I'm saying, what do you think the valve tip's doing out there? You know, this guy has spent thousands and tens of thousands getting flow right, valve type angle, blah, blah, blah. And then he puts this belt on there that's just fluttering like crazy. See, now I'm starting to leap back and I'm being rough here. I'm saying this is back in that stupid thing. When you have a known event and then you at the other end of it, you spend time engineering bucks getting this thing right. And you put something in the middle of it that's destroying every bit of that. This is, you know, what I'm trying to get to, this is the evolution of industry. And, you know, and I can pick a number of subjects uh, about this, but this is the education part of it. Getting back to balancing where our focus of this discussion is, get that out of the equation. Take that off the table and you don't have to review it again. It's done. It works. But to leave it and then you do everything else is the same thing as if you're sitting and putting a dry mechanism between the crank and the cam valve train that is, quite frankly, parasitic. So it's the same thing. Okay. Well, Randy, speaking on education, um, we, you know, if someone wants to dig deeper into this subject, uh, we worked on putting together a book, correct? Uh, yep. We have a balancing manual um, that actually to be purchased on the AERA website uh, for $79 for anyone, uh, member, non-member, you can buy that. Um, it's a, it's been a, that's a benefit to the members um, who are active, take membership and so forth. And there's been a great deal of effort to produce that book um and there's been a great deal of support from the industry um in getting the word out there and i think uh and you were a huge help with that um shared a ton of information time uh the opportunity to get in front of equipment and get some good pictures and again the uh from the base knowledge and go through many of the applications uh where where this is uh an opportunity for someone in their shop as well. Again, you don't just have to balance cranks and rods and, you know, the short block stuff. There's a uh, plenty of opportunity outside of that. Like say all those couplers that, that you mentioned throughout the, the uh, talk. Well, listen, thank you for the comment, but here's the bottom line. If the guy is, is interested in, in engine building, this is a great documentation and it's very uh, fundamental. It's as direct. Uh, in fact, I'll pick one segment of that that uh, is a key focal point for me. We we mentioned bob weights in there, and I go into a lot of shops, and uh, we put in a lot of new equipment, but I also see shops that are running older equipment, and I look at the bob weights that they're using, and some of the bob weight configuration are generated by old school thought processes that it's mass weight only. In other words, let's say the bob weight was 2,000, and they don't care how they get there. First of all, that will give false load to the crankshaft and the machine. It doesn't have the ability to come in and say, hey, you're doing that wrong. No, no, no. Uh, listen, what the machine does, it reports what you gave it. So when we see these these bob weights, I mean, they got grind marks on them. They've been drop <laughs> tested. They've got chips. They got shims. They got welded nuts. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. The bob weight is the equivalent and the same critical mass 
of, of efficiency as a micrometer. In other words, a micrometer without a standard is a C-clamp. Well, a bob weight that is not moment matched and qualified and taken care of, by the way. Listen, if you drop test the thing and it's dinged, it didn't get better. You know, there, it's, it's, you've, you've injured it. And so you're now going to take that and put it on the crank and the machine just, it doesn't know. It's going to read the amount of force generated. So I like say, and we mentioned that lightly in, in the, the magazine, excuse me, in the uh, book. And by the way, whether you're uh, a novice or a pro, there's great information in there. And by the way, going back to this thing, the ARA in general, the, the dollars spent for that manual, if you're a member, you get that free. And, and what I'm saying, I watch people come back and say, you know, what's the membership cost? And I'll tell them. And I say, oh, I can't afford that. Let me tell you something. One, just one comeback pays dividends. One. And to not be a member of that and to get that kind of information, plus magazines, plus all the other manuals that you guys have. Again, I'm, I'm in that part where I'm trying to question your intellect. The business. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to understand that if you are a professional, non-professional novice and you're building engines, if you are going to do it and you're going to wear blinders, sleeping blinders and build that engine, that's the same equivalence of not getting technical data. And I can keep it that simple. So yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say that old thing of, uh, you know, crap in, crap out, right? Yours, the in, outputs are as good as the inputs. <laughs> well, there, there's an old saying, it's a pretty rough statement, but you can't fix stupid. Well, let me tell you something. That's a little harsh. But again, I use the analogy of a guy building an engine with his eyes closed. And and that's, that would be a stupid thing to do, right? Now, Judy, my wife, gets really mad at me for using that word. But I got to tell you, if it'll shock you into reality, I'm good with it. Well, we appreciate the comments on the membership. And like you say, you know, it's it's <laughs> for what you get, not only the manuals, but talking to there's five tech guys that we have here um, for three hundred and ninety nine dollars a year. It's pretty cheap to get that expertise and that information. Well, the question you have to ask yourself is the first comeback that could have been eliminated by knowledge. Yep. What is that worth? Yep. And if you answer that question. You know, and you're not a member. It's a choice. I get that. And and don't misunderstand. I'm not cavalier about $399. That, that's not the case at all. Right. But I don't know of a single engine that comes back that isn't going to cost you more than that. Correct. Well, Randy, we appreciate you being on our uh, podcast today. Um, and like Chuck had mentioned, you know, we have that balancing manual where a lot of the information that was discussed today, plus many, many more um much more information is included in that manual and you can get that on our website. <clears throat> but again, we appreciate you taking your time out of your busy day to be with us here today. And uh, thank you for sharing your information with our listeners. No, thanks for the opportunity. And listen, guys, it all comes directly from the heart. We, our industry is wonderful operating. In fact, let me put this last thing in. Our key to success is our youth. The key is to make sure that they understand. And Warren Johnson, who's a good friend of mine, he and I have talked about this before and say properly invested, properly done. A machinist at some point will make as much monetarily as a doctor. Now you got to understand if you don't believe that 
You can challenge it. I get it. But I can show you case after case after case after case of the guys that have bought into this thing, use education, capital investment, commitment, uh, and they are making more than doctors. So this trade has the merit. It's, it's uh, In fact, you know, the guys used to say, well, it's not as big as it used to be back in the 70s and 80s. Listen, if you had a shingle out there, you were a shop. Today is a professional shop. Yeah. There is opportunity. Very well put. Well, Chuck, you got anything for Randy as we uh, send him on his way here? Just a big thank you. Uh, appreciate knowing that uh, you'll take the phone calls when we have them and your time today to uh, carve out some of that and sit here and talk to us. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, it was great having Randy on today, Chuck. He informed a lot of us about how important it is to balance engine components, not only in the rotating assembly, but other parts of the, the engine as far as camshafts or turbos. Right. Turbos, definitely, that resonates with us all today, right? On nearly everything, small automotive, industrial, performance, diesel is huge, and Every, you know, the Volt one parts, as he mentioned, uh, it's important there as well. You don't want to assume that a, a damper or a flywheel is where it needs to be if you, if you have the opportunity to put the package all together. So good information. Yeah, it was great having Randy on. And, and like we said, you know, he's, he's got a lot of information and is very informative about engine balancing. And if you'd like to hear more from Randy... You can actually, he will be at the Engine, Perform, per, Engine Performance Expo October 12th through the 14th in Piney Flats, Tennessee. There is an option to attend live if you'd like so. And if you'd like more information about that show or expo, you can visit, visit engineperformanceexpo.com on the internet. All the information will be there about upcoming guests. Actually, Chuck and I will be there. We're doing some um, speaking on our education Right. So um, anyone that's a member of AERA, uh, they know that that's very important. We're trying to share a message. Education is key. Um, we need to bring some youth into our industry. And uh, as we talked about the engine earlier, uh, the Engine Rebuilders Education Foundation. So this is all for a good cause, a good outreach. And that's kind of the mission of the show this year. Um who can help educate our future about the engine repair industry. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up about the engine, Chuck, because I, I forgot to mention that earlier is all those proceeds and all those ticket sales, all that money is going to go to that education foundation to help educate anybody that is willing to look for continuing education in the engine rebuilding industry through grants and scholarships. So it's a good cause. Um, uh, we're not keeping that money. It's all going to back to support education within our industry. Yeah, and on that, I guess, you know, this is a good time as any. We've done some uh, social media posts on it. But uh, for all of our friends that are listening that know Will McKnight, um, we're actually going to be doing a scholarship in 
in honor of Will and his contributions to the industry for many, many years. Yep. Yep. And we'll be giving that away. I believe it's a $2,500 scholarship at uh, PRI at our VIP party. So we're looking forward to that as well. Yeah. Great, great, great reason there. So Absolutely. Bill is a great guy and very uh, pro-education in our industry. Uh, kind of that's what his background was. So it was it was sad to see, uh, hear of his passing, but uh, his legacy will live on for sure. Absolutely. All right, Chuck, what are we going to talk about next? All right. So, uh, yeah, after a little uh, discussion, uh, we've seen actually some of the other groups share uh, a recent article that I did on torque plate honing. So we'll we'll dive into some of the um, myths some of the probably misunderstood things about um, how and why of torque plate honing. So hopefully we can bring forth some good content. Um, and again, we've got an article out there on on that that's uh, been well received and uh, and shared. So that's the scoop. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that one as well because a lot of we get a lot of calls on our tech line about should I use a torque plate? How important is it? And it'll be good to educate listeners on. It's really important, uh, probably more important than they think uh, that it should be done. All right. So uh, you can su subscribe to the Engine Professional Podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform, or you can listen to it online at podcast.engineprofessional.com. Again, that's podcast.engineprofessional.com. And again, let's say uh, your Spotify iTunes, Apple, Amazon, we're out there. So uh, whatever your favorite is, give us a look, give us a shout, give us a like. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, feel free to drop Chuck and I an email at eppodcast at aera.org. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're always looking for suggestions on topics and things. So just give us an uh, email at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, this brings us to the end of another exciting episode of the Engine Professional Podcast. Um, there, there are a lot of fun. I know we've said this in the past, but as we do more of them, um, they become more fun to me. Absolutely, yeah. The loosening up, uh, you know, and that's what our critiques usually are from from our friends in the industry. Hey, just loosen up, loosen up. You got good messages, uh, so just flow with it. So anybody else to, out there, um, yeah, it, it's uh, been a learning curve for us, and uh, but it's it's fun. Uh, quite enjoy it. Yep. Looking forward to uh, doing these in the future, having some good guests on and great topics. And um, that kind of brings us to the end of this episode. So as we always say, till next time, Chuck. Chuck.